Well, good morning and uh, welcome to City Legal. Uh, we're live streaming this morning from Silk's Cafe. It looks a little bit like a kind of a, a TV studio at the moment. Uh, but whether you're uh, joining us online because you're working from home, like many of us, or you've got a small watch party in a cafe or in, in, um, in an office, or if you're here in person, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, my name's Peter Wrench and our City Legal is a community that exists to consider the bigger questions of life with silks and suits in cities right around Australia. And um, we do that by looking at the Bible together. Uh, we want to, uh, uh, we really want to stand with you at this uh, difficult time. Now, uh, if you're new amongst us, a special welcome to you. The format is a brief talk followed by a Q&A. Um, now, you can ask questions anytime by uh, texting them to the phone number that you'll see uh, posted uh, on the bottom of the chat if you're on Zoom, or if you're here in person, there's a phone number at the bay on the front of the um, leaflet, and you can use that. Now, we're incredibly privileged to have uh, speaking for us today, Philip Jensen. Uh, Philip was the chaplain of University of New South Wales for many years before he became the Dean of Sydney, and he's now retired, although I don't really believe that. Uh, now, I, I met Philip first when I went to university, and um, uh, I owe a massive debt of gratitude to him because my entire life was turned upside down, or perhaps I should say the right, right way around, uh, as he taught the Bible to me. So. Uh, in a moment, we're going to turn over to Philip, but before that, he's asked that a small section from Paul's letter to the uh, small group of Christians in Corinth be read, and uh, Lisa's going to come now and uh, read that for us. So thanks so much, Lisa. The passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15, sorry, 17 to 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning, even remotely. I've come to speak to you about how God fools the atheists. And I want to start with one of the famous ones, Bertrand Russell, the great 20th century atheist, who was asked what he would say if in his death he met God. And he replied, why didn't you give us more evidence? It's, it's more than a blame shift from Russell to God. It's also an expression of the arrogant folly of enlightenment atheism. <laughs> Similarly, when our Gough Whitlam was asked what he would say to his maker, he replied, well, you can be sure of one thing, I shall treat him as an equal. 
This morning, I want to look at one verse, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. The context of chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians is human boasting. And the answer Paul is giving is the gospel message of the cross. I'll read verses 20 and 21 to give the immediate context. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And I want to start off by considering the wisdom of the world. In particular, that which has afflicted most of us, the atheism of our age. And it's come from the 18th century enlightenment, which was a great movement of the mind that Christians contributed to. That means you fought against superstition, choosing to live not by ideologies, but by evidence, by universal reason and experience, by rationalism and empiricism, if you like to put it in those terms, but while Christians contributed to this, indeed the Reformation was the foundation of it, the Enlightenment took a decided atheistic bent, replacing God with man, replacing revelation with reason. So my Oxford companion of philosophy gives a six-point summary of the Enlightenment. One, reason is man's central capacity and it enables him not only to think, but also to act correctly. Two, Man is by nature rational and good. Three, both an individual and humanity as a whole can progress to perfection. Now, this is a total denial of Christian understanding. And though many Enlightenment figures moved to deism rather than atheism, the movement headed to atheism. I mean, you can see this if you compare the Humanist Manifestos of 1933, 73 and 2003. The earliest ones spoke of religious humanism, but the later ones of secularist humanism. By 1973, one still had a place for religion, its beneficial effects for people, but by 2003, there was no place. Knowledge was derived by observation experiment. Humans are only really part of an unguided process of this nature. Ethical values that arrive from human need and interest as tested by experience, life's fulfillment emerges in individual participation. The work to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. Now, there's no place for God in any of the 2003 statement. Our existence is meaningless. Our morality is self-interested happiness, expressed all in Orwellian kind of double talk. Let's get back to our verse here in 1 Corinthians. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Now, how has he done this? Well, verse 21 explains that in his wisdom, the world didn't know him through wisdom. Notice first that it was his choice. He thought it was best that by human wisdoms, we did not know, we would not know, we couldn't know him. He was not going to be found either in Greek philosophy or in the, their love of wisdom, nor in Jewish signs, their love of miracles. But to put it in modern terms, neither in our rationalism nor in our empiricism would he allow himself to be found by humans. 
this means by the very heart of the enlightenment of modern humanism namely rationalism and empiricism atheists like richard dawkins could never find god would fail to find god I mean, god is there but he refuses to be known that way <laughs> the foolishness of atheism is increasingly become apparent as postmodernism has taken over from that failed enlightenment experiment. Pure rationality was always a myth, for rationalist philosophies always have some unprovable foundations upon which they're built. Combining it with empiricism doesn't help because it still relies on unprovable foundations. Consequently, by the 21st century, atheism has plunged the world into meaninglessness. And consequently, amorality and illiteracy. I mean, listen to Richard Dawkins on the purpose of life. We reach out in our search for meaning until we suddenly realise it is we who actually provide the purpose in a universe that would otherwise have none. And without any purpose, listen to him on morality. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. No evil, no good. So then where can justice be found? Lord Denning, not everybody's cup of tea, I understand, the master of the roles from the 1960s to the 80s, he warned, without religion, there can be no morality. And without morality, there can be no law. And if religion perishes in the land, truth and justice will also. It's a stark warning he gave. But as the philosopher Professor Jesse Prince of City University of New York relate, another atheist, of course, no amount of reasoning can engender a moral value because all values are at bottom emotional attitudes. The judgment that something is morally wrong is an emotional response. This atheism plunges us into the insanity of a Kafka world, the Nietzschean quest for power, the Orwellian newspeak that we see all around us. A world where power defines everything. And sadly, Mao was right, Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. A world where the deconstruction is transforming public debate into power games of language. I mean, the public atheist, Thomas Nail, Nagel, a professor of philosophy and law at New York University, wrote, wrote a book called What Does It All Mean? It's about life in general. And he concludes, but what's the point of being alive at all? There's no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all or if I didn't care about anything. But I do. That's all there is to it. He continues, if life is not real, life is not earnest and the grave is its goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, if we can't take ourselves so seriously, perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. And so he concludes his book, Life 
may be not only meaningless, but absurd. The sheer absurdity of atheism has created the postmodern world. But nobody wants to be operated on by a postmodern surgeon, or have a postmodern auditor, or a postmodern judge and jury. The failure of enlightenment atheism is all around about us today, but its real failure is found right back in its foundation, for it excluded God by limiting reality and human nature to rationality and empiricism. We always have the problem of personal relationships. Personal relationships require something more. They require revelation and willingness and trust. Nobody knows another person without revelation and nobody has a friend without trust. Now, take my sister, for example. What can you tell me about my sister? Rationalism can tell you she's female and she has a brother. But notice that's just tautology. It's just definitional from the meaning of the word sister. You're not telling me anything real about my sister. Why, you don't even know if I have a sister. Empiricists could tell us how much she weighs and the colour of her hair and the colour of her eyes and her height and her age. But they can't tell us anything about her, the person. Not unless she's willing to talk. For it's the spirit of a person who knows the person and anybody she's willing to talk to. Look across at chapter 2 and verse 11. For who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. As with my sister, so with God. To know her requires her to reveal herself to you. To know God requires him to reveal himself to you. But what if she's unwilling? What if God's unwilling? What if he doesn't want us to know him? What if there's conflict? Well, as of all people should know firsthand how hard it is to create friendship when people are in conflict. To bring about a genuine reconciliation, not just a compromise settlement. Look back at our verse. Because it's talking of God's way to create relationship, of God's way of reconciliation. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's preaching didn't give us the knowledge we wanted. Paul's preaching gave us the salvation we needed. Here is what the atheist Gilbert Ryle would call a category mistake or Thomas Kuhn a paradigm shift. The atheist thinks the problem between God and humans is lack of information, especially lack of information provided by God to humanity. But this makes God answerable to the human court, the human court of human rationality and empiricism that we have set up. But the problem between God and humanity is not lack of information, but humanity's arrogant rejection of God and God's righteous anger towards humanity. God is not obliged to answer his creatures' criticism. He's not answerable to people, especially those who think they're in charge and reject him. 
The problem is not a lack of information, but human sinfulness and God's anger. We've turned our back on God, our maker. We've chosen to run our own life, our own way without him. We've chosen to make up the rules for ourselves. We've chosen to rebel against him. We've chosen to ignore him. And then we've had the gall to complain when he chooses to leave us alone to our own folly. God chooses not to be known by human cleverness, but by reconciling his enemies, by saving his creatures from our folly. So in our verse, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Paul's message appeared foolish folly, but was powerful. For Paul preached Christ and him crucified. Folly to the arrogant wisdom of the world, but salvation to the humble believers. See, the impact of the cross is a little lost in us, for we forget what the cross was about. Romans used crucifixion to tyrannise the conquered into submission, a little bit like IS using beheadings publicly shown on videos for the world to see. It was a, more than a painful way to die, crucifixion. It was a shameful way to die. It was a political statement of Roman power and of your defeat, weakness and humiliation. For nothing looks much more defeated than a naked man trussed up on a stake, left to die, in public ignorance. To talk of the power of the cross is perverse and paradoxical. How can somebody who is crucified be powerful? How can his crucifixion save anybody else? How can it be possibly powerful? How can the message of the crucifixion save any? Both the Jew and the Greek, as with the modern atheist, looks for the wrong thing. They have the wrong diagnosis of the human obstacle between God and man. They thought, as people still think, that the obstacle between God and humanity is information lack, is need for evidence. Whereas throughout the Bible and all down the history of Israel's prophets, we're told that the obstacle is our sin and God's justice. Our sin has destroyed our relationship with God. We've rebelled against him. And true to his character, he's rightly angry with us. More wisdom and information will never overcome this obstacle. More miracles and signs will not overcome this obstacle. Clever people are quite capable of wrecking relationships. Cleverness does not restore relationships. But the divorce rate amongst intellectuals is as high as any. Brains and education don't make for good relationships. Last year, the atheist um, classic scholar and writer Tom Holland wrote a book, good book called Dominion. It, it's part of his paradigm shift. For he always thought our way of life came from the Greeks and the Romans, like a good Enlightenment scholar would. But he has come to discover the crucifixion, crucifixion of Jesus is the basis of our civilization. He wrote, in my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I'm not Greek and Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Jesus' death for our sins was God's reconciliation plan. 
for our severed relationship with him. But it requires the humility of being in the dock and accepting God's plan for our salvation and not sitting on the bench and requiring God to give us evidence and answer for, that will suit our expectations. The issue in the end is not knowledge. It's not philosophy. It's not wisdom. It's the personal spiritual issue of facing the truth. Professor Thomas Nagel, whom I mentioned a little while ago, wrote in another of his books, a book called The Last Word. He wrote, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Bertrand Russell, raised by a Unitarian grandmother, never really heard the message of the cross and reconciliation, of forgiveness and pardon, of grace. He only heard of morality, of the deism of godless Christianity. He, of course, was a terrible, immoral, adulterous user of women, a self-deceived liar. His daughter became a Christian, reading his books and realising she had everything he taught her to have, but his answers did not mean what life was about. His four marriages, his inability to listen to the message or to her discussions with him. You see, you can't get to know God by purposely shutting your eyes to him, by sitting in judgment on him as if you're God, but only by accepting his death for your sin. We invite people to become Christians often. And when we invite people to become Christians, the invitation is to a prayer. You see, the kind of prayer you need to pray to become a Christian is an acknowledgement that you are not worthy to be accepted by God. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you, and I need forgiveness. That's the beginning of finding God. Thanking God for sending his son to die for me and that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose to give me new life. That's the gospel message. The way to know God is to approach him and say, please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my Lord. Well, in a few moments, we can have question time, aren't we? You know the way in which you're collecting up the questions, and I think Pete is going to be reading those questions to me, and let's see if we can if we can make some sense of what I've been saying so far. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. <laughs> um, Philip, I'm actually going to start by asking you about those intriguing silhouettes you've got behind you in your office. What are they? It's, it's uh, silhouettes of Charles Simeon that were made while he was preaching 
He was a great uh, student uh, minister in uh, Cambridge uh, yeah, 150 more years ago. And he's the father of actually modern Bible teaching and Bible preaching. Our concepts of what you do in a pulpit preaching nearly all come from Charles Simeon. And, uh, you know, no photographs, no videos, no Zooms in those days, but they could do silhouettes. And so these very famous set of silhouettes of what he looked like. He was quite an eccentric man. And uh, even the, the silhouettes show his eccentricities. Well, uh, can, I, can I be bold enough to ask you, which one would you identify with most? Uh, no, I identify with the fact he spent most of his lifetime caring for university students and raising up men and women Okay. All right. Well, we've got a we've got a lot of questions here, Philip. Can I start with this one, please? It's a very heartfelt question. The person, the questioner asks, "I would like to be able to become a Christian. I, I admire believers, but I, I genuinely, genuinely just can't believe that God exists." What would you say to that person? Uh, I can't force you, or. Uh, in a sense, help you to uh, uh, to be anything other than genuine in what you believe. Um, that's you know, we each have our own um, responsibility to believe what we believe, to understand what we understand. But I would move you to focus less on God and more on Jesus. Because believing in God moves you into tropical uncertainty. Believing in Jesus puts you into the world of history and reality. And you've got to really then pose the question, well, who was he? What did he do? Why did the life of a man crucified by the Romans change the world? What was it about him, his teaching, his life? his death, what was it about him would have greater power than Caesar, and greater power than Genghis, greater power than you name them. He is the one who has established a kingdom that has lasted. And he did it very, very differently to say Muhammad. Muhammad comes into Mecca in the front of an army of 10,000 people. Understand how he conquered. Jesus came in on a donkey and was executed seven days later. That is a totally different way of creating an empire. But it's an empire that's lasted for 2,000 years and continues to grow. So look more to Jesus and less to God and less to your own thinking. Okay, thank you. Um, we have a question here. Uh, you mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans. I'm having difficulty hearing you, Peter. Okay, I'll try and speak up a little bit. Sorry about that, Philip. Um, we've got a question sure. here. We've got a question here about the Romans actually calling the Christians atheists. How are we to make sense yeah. of that? Uh, Christians followed the pattern of the Old Testament as Christians should, and and destroyed idols. The creation of a statue, an imagery, to, uh, to capture God is always, a, uh, is always a lie because the thing the statue captures is never the essence of God. Statues are dead. Statues are dumb. 
statues are mute. Uh, in that sense, statues are, are deaf. Statues, you move the statue, the statue doesn't move you. All the key things about God, living, active, powerful, hearing, speaking, creating, the statue denies. And so the Old Testament, you don't have to go into the New Testament, the Old Testament denies idolatry, denies creating imagery of God because humans are created in the image of God. And every statue is less than a human. So the Christians got rid of statues, got rid of idolatry, got rid of religious bric-a-brac, if you like. They got rid of charms and, and, and spells and the like. And so from a Roman point of view, they seem to be atheists because when you went into their church, there were no gods there. So what kind of people were these people that were so seemingly godless? They also accused us of incest because we married our brothers and sisters because Christians created a new sense of social community that had not been seen before. And again, the Romans misunderstood our brothers and sisters into thinking we were talking about physical brothers and sisters that we were marrying. Okay. All right. Uh, we've got a question from the chat that's come through. Um, how is revelation a reliable source of knowledge? Isn't reason more rational? By definition, reason is more rational. <laughs> that has to be the case. That's like my sister, who I don't have, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> uh, revelation, sorry, uh, the two are not mutually excuse, uh, exclusive. Uh, I can use my reason to understand and analyze revelation. Uh, the problem with revelation is that we are dealing with people who tell lies. And so we really always have to test the revelation when people say, well, I am like this, then we have to test it and provoke. When God speaks, we then need to test what he is saying. We need to actually read, read what the scriptures are saying that God says and look into the truth of what he says. But over time, as you look more and more, you'll find that God speaks truthfully. And the more you find the truthfulness of the person, the more you trust them. All relationships require trust. When you first meet a person, you trust them. As you discover their lies, you diminish your trust of them. When you're worthy, restoring that trust is very, very difficult. <clears throat> so with adultery cases in uh, marriage uh, and divorce, I think you'll find that the sex is not the thing that really destroys the marriage. <clears throat> it's the lies that go alongside it. Because the person has lived a life of a lie it's very hard for you to ever trust them again very hard to, for them to ever regain marriage counseling book i've got says that to regain trust is like moving bondi beach with a fork it's possible but it'll take a very long time if you trust what god says you will find he is totally trustworthy rational acceptance of revelation trust of course is essential to existence 
the person who trusts nothing knows nothing. And the person who trusts nobody has no friends. <clears throat> so Descartes worked on the principle of I trust nothing until it's proven. In the end, all he could say is, I think, therefore I am. And if he'd thought hard enough about it, he that that actually is inaccurate. Uh, all you can really say is, I think, therefore I think. You can't necessarily say that means I am. So if you want to trust, if you want to doubt, literally doubt I'm talking about, not moral doubt, if you want to doubt everything, you will know nothing is an essential part of epistemology. Okay, we, we had a question along a similar lines, um, but the, the questioner asked, but don't we use scientific method to determine truth, even personal knowledge? Surely that's more in line with reason than revelation. So it's using scientific truth, so using scientific method to determine truth. I love the scientific method. I'm quite committed to it. I think it is a very important thing. I have very little time for the hocus-pocus medicine people. My brother had polio. I had diphtheria. I had scarlet fever. It was scientific medicine that gave us life. I'm deeply indebted to science and the science that is involved in medicine and uh, have very little patience for people who are ignoring the science uh, involved with coronavirus. Uh, science is a very important thing. But science, by its own philosophy and methodology and basis, is uncertain. The, the heart of science is the ability to disprove the present belief systems. It's never actually, it never arrives at the final conclusion because you never know whether the next experiment is going to demonstrate that you've misunderstood what you saw in the last experiment. Mm -hmm. And so science and, and, and empiricism is a, a program of our continuing discoveries rather than a final conclusion. Rationalism can give you absolute knowledge of rational systems. So in maths, you're either right or wrong. In science, you're right so far as we know. But next week, you'll get a different view. I, I had a, a dear friend who was a professor in virology, and he told me that in the end, he stopped revising his lectures because it was a waste of time, he found, because from every year, more discoveries were being made that made last year's lectures inaccurate. So after a few years, he just discovered it was easier to, to explain the inaccurate and the principles. If you got the principles to the students, then when they actually came out and started working, they would have to update the information. That's the nature of really good science. It's a program of discovery, not a final conclusion. And that's why in science, there's always debate, and there should be. And this is a good thing that we, we have scientific debate. Your other problem with science is it's not all abrasive. It can, it can be really good on something like chemistry but it is, and botany, say, but it really is very poor in the human sciences. Uh, going to university in the high watermark of science, every lecture class I went to started off by telling us their 
the discipline was the science. And so we always had a first lecture on the science of economics, the science of history, the science of English. It was complete nonsense. Uh, economy, economics, that's no science. I mean, it changes weekly uh, that you're doing there. And it's full of different views. It's, you can't experiment on everything. You can't replicate experiments. Historical events can't be replicated. In fact, one of our problems in developing things for coronavirus is how do we actually give it to some people in order to find out what happens compared to people we don't have? There's ethical limitations that you can do to science. The Hitler's scientists, they didn't bother with the ethical implications. And we hold them for responsible for their experimenting on humans. Mm. Science has all kinds of intellectual and ethical limitations to it. So it's not a total knowledge. Mm. But we've got to go with it because it's the best thing going. It's like democracy. You know, it's the, of the forms of government, um, it's the best that it itself is worth. Well, um, I think I think Philip, we've got time for just one one more question from the floor here. Um, uh, is theism the answer for the future of humanity on Earth, rather than a major religion? Is theism? Yeah, that's correct. Is theism the answer for the future of humanity on Earth, rather than a major religion? I believe Jesus is the answer, and that Jesus' answer is a theistic answer but I believe Jesus is the answer. It's not just general theism, because there's all kinds of people who will believe in God, uh, who is not the true and living God. So it's got to be more specific than just general theism. Uh, but is theism is the belief in God, the answer rather than religion? Yes, absolutely. And no, that's ridiculous. Uh, yes, because the truth lies in our relationship with God rather than our relationship with any organized religion and because organized religion always has lots of humans who are sinful and who wreck up the belief in god but why it's stupid is because christians uh, because humans are uh, 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 relational not individualist peoples and we always in our relationship with with each other create institutions whether they are formal legal institutions or just casual institutions institution is an inevitable outcome of our social gregarious nature and so the idea that we'll be able to just have theism without organized religion is a nonsense it will what we've got to keep doing is reforming organized religion by the theism that it professes right well thank you thank you so much philip uh for, for sharing with us and answering those questions and i thank you everyone for being part of it um uh, online and here in person and uh, we'll see you here uh, next time uh, at the same time. Pleasure so thank to be you. there. Thank it's you. lovely to see the chairs of silks that I used to sit on. Okay. Yeah, they're still as, as uncomfortable as Stuart can testify. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much. See you. It's a pleasure. Bye now.